Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 115, Mere Evangelism. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us, from three various locations throughout the great Old Dominion state of Virginia. We're in Northern Virginia. We're in Central Virginia. We're in Southwest Virginia today. We have a special guest, Randy Newman, with us today that Jesse's going to introduce for us in just a moment. Mere evangelism. Guys, you guys have been with us. You know we finished up a very lengthy series on the concepts related to goodness and justice and how those even can land us in helpful places to talk to others. And then last uh, a couple episodes ago, my friend Mike Exencamper, who led me to Jesus, right, as a college student, joined us. And so we've been talking about sharing the gospel with others. And so when Jesse texted with me about the possibility of bringing Randy Newman on the podcast, someone who's influenced me indirectly through his writings, we were thrilled to have him on. So Randy, thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. And I'm going to let Jesse introduce us to his friend. Yeah, Randy, thank you for joining us. And um, you're not you're not the composer, Randy Newman. You no, are no. You I'm are, very you, grateful to be here, but I I did not write. You've got a friend. You've got a friend in me. That's right. Although we might use his face on the promo for this uh, podcast. No, Randy Newman, the one and only, the true and better Randy Newman, is a uh, is a friend from back in the day. We both worked for the same campus ministry. Actually, Randy taught a biblical communication class I took, along with my wife Jenny, uh, who at after the first class was afraid of Randy. She, I do have that effect on people. I don't know why, but um, has she recovered, I hope? Yeah, so by the end of our class, she loved she loved Randy. She thought Randy was the, was the greatest. Uh, Randy lives in the Washington, D.C. area, is married to his wife, Pam, uh, has three grown sons, and any grandsons, Randy? We have two granddaughters and a grandson, and two daughters-in-law, and uh, they're all adorable, and they all live too far away from their grandparents, which is oh, just no. no, it's horrible. Oh, no. You know, Randy has graciously joined me on, uh, on my Bonhoeffer House podcast, The Hammer and Quill, to talk about his vocation as an evangelist and an author. That was on episode 22, which we can post in the show notes. Uh, in that ap- episode, actually, we were talking about Randy's workflow, and read, um, you, you know, I, I'm sure you listened, but you couldn't, you couldn't see what we could see. And what we could see is that Randy's workflow is like, it's like, uh, what's the guy's name from A Beautiful Mind? Oh, right. John Nash. Yes. John Nash. Yes. His whole um, office was just a 360 degree uh, whiteboard. The giant post-it notes. No, it was a whiteboard. Ah. It was giant post-it notes with his book in a book that was up on the walls all around. It was this book that we're talking about today, mere evangelism, 10 insights from CS Lewis to help you share your faith. And so i uh, love to get into the book, Randy, but before we do, would you tell us a little bit about your journey to and with Jesus? And, and maybe you could incorporate how uh, the role that CS Lewis and his writings played in your conversion. Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I, um, I grew up in suburbs of New York City in a Jewish home. Um, what I would say was uh, a typical American Jewish home at the time, which meant we were culturally and socially Jewish, but not necessarily all that religiously Jewish. 
Um, but um, my, my dad fought in World War II, and so my parents' generation was the generation of Jewish people who first learned about the Holocaust. Um, and so there was this big push in the 1950s and 60s to raise Jewish uh, children to know what it meant to be Jewish. And so I had some pretty serious religious instruction, even though I think my parents didn't necessarily hold to those views that strongly. I started taking Judaism quite seriously. Um, but it but it didn't connect me to God. I, I felt like God was always distant and alien, and it was rather frustrating. Um, in high school, I met a group of Christian friends who invited me to their church youth group, which I went to because it was lots of fun. Um, but they challenged me to read the New Testament, which I promptly said, no, it's an anti-Semitic book. I don't want anything to do with it. And they encouraged me to read a book called Mere Christianity by a guy named C.S. Lewis. I thought, who cares about Lewis? I don't know who he is. Uh, I, I went off to college, and I thought life was pointless, absurd, meaningless, ridiculous. I watched a lot of Woody Allen movies and read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut novels and got drunk a whole lot. And, um, but I was a music major, and I thought, I thought maybe music was going to somehow connect me to God, that I would hear some piece of music that I would say, ah, now that's my piece of music. That's the one that connects me. And uh, every concert I went to was disappointing as well. And in the middle of my sophomore year in college, uh, a friend of mine died. And I remember sitting at his funeral thinking, okay, enough already. I got to get some answers. Hmm. So I started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I took out of the school library, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And God used those two to, first of all, convince me that Jesus was the Messiah, but uh, through Lewis's writing, that that the Messiah was the one I was looking for huh. in all of those concerts. And all of those disappointments were meant by God to be disappointing because they would be pointers to. And so Lewis's whole framework of that all of these disappointments are evidence that we were made for another world, um, that changed my life in the middle of my sophomore year. I became a, a, a Jewish believer in Jesus, the Messiah, and that's the quick version, but you were probably looking for the quick version. <laughs> so uh, I, I just, I love now the way Judaism and Christianity fit together, and I love the way all of life is a pointer to the God who created yeah. all of life. Good. Thank you, Randy. That was, so, so actually your story uh, is woven into the book just a little bit because of how uh, those those clues and pointers helped lead you to Jesus as the Messiah and the answer to or the fulfillment of uh, those pointers. And so we'll, we'll work that in as we, we dive into three or four of the chapters. Uh, but I'd love to know first if you if you could explain a little bit. I, I know you from our Campus Crusade for Christ days, but now you're the senior fellow of the C.S. Lewis Institute. And I'd love to know what that means. Hey, uh, hey, Rand, hey Randy, can I just stop for one second and ask you, how was it for your family when you were working for something called Campus Crusade for Christ? Because that's a the name's been changed since then, but that was uh, that that had to be interesting. Mm, did you well, did you ask your ask your parents for financial support? I I did not. Um, um, oh boy, that's that's another whole topic. Uh, but. Um, 
Well, my my parents wanted to be uh, true liberals, true open-minded people. So when I became a believer, they said, well, as long as, you know, you don't try to do anything crazy and (laughs) shave your head. uh, I don't know why that was a requirement. And, and, you know, if that's what makes you happy, then fine. Um, Although, you know, it's funny, Jewish parents can say if that's what makes you happy in a way – that makes you amazingly unhappy. Uh, you know, it's, it's astonishing. Um, but you know, um, again, there's a whole other story, but uh, my mom came to faith when she was in her seventies. My dad wow. came to faith when he was in his eighties. Wow. So it was a long journey, but, um, but at first it was pretty rocky because you know, that's, that's, that's like joining the enemy team in their mind. Yeah. Mm. That's encouraging. You know, I, have, I have an unbelieving father who's still, unbelieving yeah. and so that's encouraging to hear that late yeah and you uh you actually wrote a little bit about that in one of your um uh did you write a book about bringing the gospel home can you remind me the title of that randy yeah, well that is called bring it is called bringing the gospel home and I it nailed about, it it was about um witnessing to family members you know i i wrote questioning evangelism and it opened up all of these opportunities for me to speak in churches and train people and I started seeing that during the Q&A time that there was always someone, and it very often it was the first question asked, but there was always someone who said, well, thanks, this is great, but uh, what do I say to my father? He's an atheist, or my mother, she's an alcoholic, or my brother, he's gay. or yeah. and, and it was always so loaded with deep and difficult emotions that I said, well, somebody's got to have written about the unique challenges of witnessing to family, and I, I couldn't find anything. I found some articles in a discipleship journal, um, but I decided to start interviewing people about their experiences with witnessing to family, both the ones that succeeded, if I can say that that way, of people who came to faith and people who didn't. And I put them the stories together and wove them into a book that Crossway published, and um uh, I, I'm really grateful that the Lord gave me the ability to write that book, but it, but it's it's a difficult book to read. It was a difficult book to write because it's just so filled with such deep yeah. emotional struggles. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and 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 part of the problem, part of the thing I wanted to say to people is, oh no, no, this is more difficult. It is because people are usually baffled. Like it's like I can talk to my next door neighbor, but I can't talk to my brother. Well, yeah, because there's so much layers of deep emotional connection there, yeah. and it's far more painful when your brother tells you to shut up than yeah. when a total stranger yeah, yeah. tells you that. He gave you a wedgie when you were eight years old, and you've gone through everything in life. It's much different than a stranger for sure. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, if nothing else, it's just a much longer time frame. You've right. known them your whole entire lives and um, deeper emotions. And and I also think, I, I think the spiritual battle heats up more with family because the family is God's institution that he came up with. So so the devil hates it. He wants yeah. to destroy families. He wants to destroy marriages. But, but you'll have to have me back on about that when I'm more <laughs> prepared for that one because that's well, you know, I started doing a whole bunch of speaking about that, and it was like, oh, this is a whole lot harder. I, I would come home far more emotionally exhausted after uh-huh. the speaking gigs than the, the ones about just evangelism in general. That totally makes sense, yeah. And and uh, you mentioned your book, Questioning Evangelism, which with Reed and I both uh, have really gained a lot from our reading of that book. We both incorporated it into 
uh, some of our own training. I know at Valley Bible Church, we've used questioning evangelism um, in different in different ways. And so I'd love to, before we get into mere evangelism, just briefly tell us a little bit about uh, maybe the synopsis of questioning evangelism and how God has used your work on that project through speaking and other other opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it it, it started with, um, I, I started getting invited to speak about how do we witness to Jewish people. And mm-hmm. so I started doing that on college campuses and in churches. And it, almost, almost just like a fleeting uh, passing comment, I remember saying, you know, Jewish people really love conversation. They love back and forth dialogue. Uh, it almost sounds like an argument culturally, but, but it's not an argument, but it's just very vigorous back and forth. And I said, so, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest things you can do in Jewish evangelism is not immediately answer people's questions, but answer their questions with questions. Answer questions with questions. And then I, I said, you know, Jesus did that a lot. And uh, but not just because it was culturally Jewish. So, you, you know, you remember um, people would say to Jesus, you know, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said, well, if, if you had a, a, an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? So it's an answering a question with a question because it engages the person in the answering process. So I started saying that. And I said, you know, when you're talking to Jewish people, you ought to answer questions with questions. And uh, one by one, people started coming up to me and saying, you know, I think that that's a good idea, not just with Jewish people. I think that that would work with Gentiles, too. And I thought, hmm, there's a wild thought. Um, <laughs> so I started experimenting with it on, co- on the college campus where we were. And I just started finding, oh, you know what? These are much, much more productive conversations about spiritual things. Um, I, I think my training in evangelism was, and, and uh, this is overstating and it's probably unfair, but for the most part, the idea was I would do all the talking. I'm the Christian. I have the truth. You should just sit there and be quiet. Let me preach at you. And I do all the talking. And I really didn't want the non-Christian to say much other than maybe an occasional, uh-huh, yeah, no. And then and then at the very end, you know, are you ready to become a Christian? Yeah. Um, but, but, but people you know, love that, right? Well, yeah, I, you know, it didn't really work all that well on the campuses where I was, you know, that that's also part of, yeah. I'm so thankful for it now. I, I was always assigned to, to difficult college campuses, big cities, East coast, lots and lots of international students, non-believers from a wide variety of non-belief and all of the standard typical campus crusade techniques that I had learned didn't work where I was. Now, I I, I think they did work in the Midwest and the South. Culturally, I think those things had better traction, but they just, they weren't working in Baltimore. They weren't working in Washington, D.C., the campuses where I was. So I had to start experimenting because, I mean, just they they, they were non-starters. You know, hey, would you like to know God personally? Get lost. I mean, you know, (laughs) it didn't didn't go well. But so so I just started experimenting with much more of asking questions, being a good listener, answering questions with questions. And we just I'm, I'm not saying we saw revival break out, but we saw much, much better conversations that went much further. And and we did see some uh, people come to faith. So so the whole book, Questioning Evangelism, kind of came out of, all right, well, what, what, what could this actually look like if people were to 
try to incorporate this kind of question asking dialogical thinking in their evangelism. Mm-hmm. You, you know, Randy, um, I remember being in the Czech Republic in the Olympic training center. I think it was a weightlifter, you know, like trying to talk to them about God in a, in a bar at the Olympic training center, you know, like, Hey, what do you think about God? God, we don't believe in God. That's for old people and women. <laughs> like, Oh, we need to have something else. Then God loves you. and has a plan for your life. And so this kind of indirect aspect has been very important in the places that we've been and very, very, very fruitful and effective. And even when we do training now, we'll typically take some of the more difficult cultural realities of the day, maybe it's sexuality, gender, whatever, and someone says, hey, does God accept, you know, A, B, C, D? And I just in the training say, you can't think about answering the question. What questions do you ask them in return? And not only do you learn more about the person, you might listen to the spirit and pray and then kind of see what direction that conversation needs to go. Um, because you learn, as you learn about people and they don't just sit there, like you said, and say, uh, 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 you might learn of something in their life that was significant, that makes them resistant to the faith or, or something that is a, is a wonderful avenue, but to go down with Jesus, to talk to them about faith. And so it's been tremendously helpful, that concept. And, uh, you know, I'll, if somebody asks you, what do you think about this? I was like, well, I always think it's a trap. Don't answer that question. Patiently, kindly return a question and then learn from God in that person the direction we should take. Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, um, th- that what Reed's talking about there in my own experience is part of why, Randy, I thought about having you on this this episode as we've wrapped up a series on the good. Uh, I knew about your book and I, uh, the new one, Mere Evangelism, and, and I was very familiar with, with questioning evangelism and asking questions as a follow-up. And I was thinking about how uh, be, finding agreement, common ground on whether or not there is such a thing as good and what, and what exactly good is sometimes does require uh, some, some questioning. It sometimes requires even some pushback. Uh, and and hearing about this project and then be, and then reading it, becoming more familiar with it, I thought, wow, there there's a lot of places in mere evangelism in this book that helps us to uh, look at the good as clues, uh, look at the good as um, a place where pre evangelism can happen, uh, even look at the the kind of the beauty of the of the good and how it connects with our imagination in ways that uh, can be evangelistic. And so, uh, so I'd love to, love to dive into talking a little bit about your new book, Mere Evangelism. I'd love to know, Randy, why did you write this book? Tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> well, um, uh, as I've done more and more uh, training and teaching about evangelism, the topic of pre-evangelism always comes up. So let me let me just pause and give definition for people. Um, evangelism is this very precise category of uh, verbally proclaiming the gospel message. So it's telling people, here's what you need to believe in order to become a Christian. You need to know that God sent his son to die for sinners, and if you receive him, you'll have eternal life. So it's a very tight a narrow statement of the gospel message. Pre-evangelism is all sorts of things we can have before that conversation so that the evangelism makes more sense. And I've always felt like in most of the places where I've been called to minister, that pre-evangelism may be more important than anything else so that 
so that when we do tell people about Jesus, it, it makes sense to them. It fits with what they now understand or believe. So I, I made a pitch to a, a publisher when I was at a conference where I said, you know, it seems to me uh, C.S. Lewis did that better than anybody. And his approach in mere Christianity is one that we need to not just not just read and go, oh, that's good, but really process and say, now, how, how can I do that? How can I how can I weave these kinds of things? I, I don't think the BBC is going to call me to to do a 15-minute broadcasts on their radio show. But but there are things that Lewis did in that book that we need to, to learn how to make it uh, part of our way of thinking and part of our way of conversing with people. So um, the, 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 uh, my friend at, at, at the Good Book Company liked that idea and said, why don't you put together a proposal and here we go. So it's, it's lessons that we learned from C.S. Lewis about pre-evangelism and about evangelism and about how he did it. And, and I mean, you, you have to look at mere Christianity and say, you know, it was considered the most influential Christian book of the 20th century. And you, you meet hundreds and hundreds of people who say that was the book that God used to help me understand the Christian faith. So I just wanted to dig in and say, what, what can we learn from him? And how do, we, how, do, how do those of us who are nowhere near as brilliant as C.S. Lewis still can do these things in our conversations? So that, that's how the book came about. Yeah, for our, any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the story of Lewis's own conversion, um, can you can you help us out with how his own journey uh, shaped his value for employing pre-evangelistic means in his writing? Oh, sure. Yeah, and and I do think that that's a big reason why it became part of his evangelism because it was part of his conversion story. So. Um, Lewis was raised in a Christian home. His grandfather was a, uh, a rector of a church, um, but his mother died when he was only 10 years old, and he gave up on God at that point. God didn't answer his prayer to heal his mother, and he got very angry at God and said he didn't believe in him anymore. <laughs> uh, many years later, he looked back on this, and he said, uh, I did not believe that God existed, and I was angry at God for not existing, <laughs> which which is a very insightful digging yeah. to his own motivation. But yeah. so from age 10 to age 32, he was an atheist and he was a rigorously trained atheist. I mean, he, because of his schooling, he developed these very, very logical, strong arguments against the belief in God. At the same time, he fell in love with mythology and story and, and, and uh, f- fiction and it was this long conversation walking around this pathway outside Maudlin College with J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, another friend where they challenged him and they said, why is it that you love mythology so much, but that you don't believe in God? Because when, when you read about a God dying in mythology and coming back to, to life, you, you just like it and you find it fascinating, but, but, you're, but you're resistant to the idea that maybe all of this mythology, all of these stories are a pointer to the true myth. That was the phrase he used. The true story that's, that shapes and flavors all the other stories. And that was terribly disturbing to him. Um, and, and eventually he had to accept that they were right 
Um, but he but he had sort of like a two-stage conversion. And the first stage was just, oh, there really is a God. Isn't that discouraging? He, he called himself <laughs> the most reluctant convert. Um, but it was later. So, so, so stage one was, oh, there really is a God. And there's a reason why I'm drawn to him, even though I don't want to be. And then it was a second stage of who is this this guy, Jesus? And, oh, he couldn't just be a good teacher. He is the one who he claimed to be. And so the second stage was much more joyous. And uh, uh, so, so, again, his path to faith was this gradual, incremental pre-evangelism realizations along the way ultimately leading to a conversion. And so he knew that he wasn't alone in this and that the people he would be talking to probably needed to come that same kind of gradual, slow route as well. Mm. Yeah. And even thinking about Tolkien and I think it was Dyson that he was walking with, right? uh, in, in a sense, employing that same way of questioning, well, why is it that you don't have a hard, as a matter of fact, not only do you not have a hard time with, with this, this, uh, kind of resurrection story and myths, you love it. Um, you know, that, that questioning pushback, but also uh, weaving together these pre-evangelistic clues and pointers uh, does seem to have shaped his own, as you show over the course of uh, this book, shaped his own practices. You know, it's interesting. Um, I just saw the movie Dune, uh, the second movie, Dune, uh, based on Frank Herbert's uh, science fiction novel, and it has all this messianic kind of idea, imagery, and uh, not only did Lewis, who's reading, you know, ancient Norse mythology and things like that, most people who've studied, so for instance, Joseph Campbell's book, A Hero Has Many Faces, have studied this meta-narrative that exists in the human race, that many cultures and people have this kind of hero story where somebody has to go to a discovery, come back as the savior, many times resurrected. And the interesting question for me has always been, why? Uh, is that a product of evolutionary nat- naturalism, just random evolution that every culture has this kind of redemption story? Or is it, as Lewis said, this kind of true myth? So if you're listening today and you're questioning about God yourself or wondering why it is, there seems to be this big story where some savior comes and it's either some random fluctuation of energy in the universe, or it's the meta story that just could be true. And I think uh, asking those questions myself helped me realize what I was longing for was actually the actual myth to be real in my life and not simply be a story from a far off country. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Speaking of longing, speaking of longing, Randy, one of the chapters is on clues. And uh, you say in that chapter on clues, really, which is about you talk about uh, C.S. Lewis's um, idea of joy, which you describe as maybe more in our modern sense, a a sense of a longing. Um, You talk about how uh, both joy and misery based apologetics work, but with different audiences. You say uh, both the pleasures provided by a good God and the disappointments of life apart from God can be clues that point people to God. Can you explain a little bit about how to search for and use clues evangelistically, what you mean by this whole idea of clues, especially in the way that C.S. Lewis used them? Mm, man, how long do we have? An hour, two hours, three hours? Um, <laughs> well, uh, our listeners can always pick the book up. and we, and That's we, true. You yes. can buy the book yeah. and read it. Um, uh, <laughs> well, so— 
there there were several things that Lewis did in Mere Christianity and in the writing of his fiction in Narnia, uh, the, the Narnia Chronicles, um, that that very few uh, evangelists and apologists do. And and the two things that seem the strongest are um, he engaged the imagination, um, and he and he tried to pull on that thread of longing. So on the imagination, it seems like a lot of apologetics and evangelistic books are saying, here are some arguments. This is why you should believe. Lewis came along and said, here's what belief would be like. Here's what it would feel like. And and the, the, the push was the same of you should believe it. But but with with other ones, it's oh, I should believe it because it's true. With Lewis's, I should believe it because it sounds good. I want it. Oh, yeah. there, it would it would be like this. Almost seems too good to be true. I, uh, um, with Lewis, he, he he started with the imagination, so that the first inclination was not hmm, this makes sense. And but he did do plenty of that. There's plenty of that kind of argument in there. But the first inclination is, oh, wouldn't it be great if this was true? Mm-hmm. So so that's the one side of things. And then the the other side of this thing about joy or longing, it's it's well, he says it so compactly in the chapter on hope in mere Christianity. And he says, um, we all face disappointments, whether it's, you know, we go on a vacation and it's a little disappointing, or we get married and the person we're married to is a little bit disappointing, or we get a job and it's a little disappointing. And he says, he says, I'm not talking about the bad ones. I'm talking about the good ones, the very best of them. It was the, it was the nicest vacation and she's a wonderful wife and chemistry is a great profession, but there's always some element of disappointment. And he said, there's, there's really only three ways you can respond to that disappointment. First is well, you just keep chasing after another experience. You go on another vacation. You get divorced and find another spouse, or you change jobs, and it'll—it's miserable. It'll—it's just exhausting. That's first. Second one is the one of the sort of the cynic, and like, oh yeah, I used to go chasing after that stuff too. Yeah, there's you know, there's no rainbow's end, so cut it out. Um, and for me, when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's me. I mean, that—that that was where Woody Allen and Kurt Vonnegut and all those other guys led me. But then Lewis comes along and says, maybe there's another way. And it's he calls it the most probable way. <laughs> um, if I find in myself an experience, which uh, a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Mm. And, and again, for me, that was revolutionary. And I, 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 I want I want to say that's something we should look for in other people and instead of saying, no, you should stop doing that, it's like, no, 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 look, look, look at that. Look at that. Pay attention to that. Maybe that's pointing us to a greater intimacy than we can ever find in another person or a greater beauty than we can ever find in a vacation or a greater sense of accomplishment that we can find in any job. But all of those longings are good longings. But we're not going to find them in the pointers. The pointers point to ultimately to God. And I don't know, that just that just sounds like, oh, isn't that isn't that uh, uh, liberating? 
that, oh, I was made for another world and I can connect to that other world. And, and then, by the way, I'm jumping in with way too many themes, but, but then all those other pointers become so much more enjoyable when you're looking to them only to be pointers instead of the ultimate. Uh, the yeah. way I like to say it is there are all these things in life that are very good gifts, but they're lousy gods. They're not good. They're not gods. But, but they're really delightful when you remember that they're gifts and they're pointers. In, in fact, you can even be delighted when they disappoint. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I knew this piece of music was going to come to an end. It was disappointing. Isn't that wonderful that it points me to uh, a God who, um, when I'm in heaven, uh, the music will never stop. The joy will never stop. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm doing. You've woven a spell. <laughs> so uh, I hope I'm not uh, rambling on too much. Yeah, and then Randy, these things are very practical. Um, people have these kinds of questions. They have these kinds of longings. They really are angry at what they see as injustice in the world. We really do care about truth, goodness, beauty, and we can help people pause to say, why is that? And and that's something that I think is a scary thing for many of us. I mean, when you start getting outside of the day-to-day press that we do uh, in our culture, you start realizing your own finitude, your own fragility, and your own frustration, right, with this life under the sun and wanting something beyond the sun. And and I think if we follow those things, I call it finding God in our questions. Yeah, I, I, let's follow that somewhere. It's like, it might be breadcrumbs down that trail that's really worth your time looking at. But sadly, it's, it's um, you know, people would rather just, you know, watch another Netflix show or just queue up something else to try the same thing to satisfy uh, their situation where they're already unsatisfied. So we have to disrupt there and and help, uh, help in that, I think. Yes. And you know, you talk in, in this book about both the clues and the imagery, you, like you said, you've kind of, you've kind of dipped into a few different of the insights and Lewis was a master of not just the clues, but a master of imagery uh, a, a master of really connecting with the imagination. I, even as I was reading this, I was reminded of so many of his images that have, have had profound impacts in my own life, have, were part of my own conversion story, but not just that, have been part of my just walk with, walk with the Lord. You know, from, uh, of course, the sin of a flower, we have not found the echo of a tune. We have not heard news from a country we have not visited. Uh, the... the um, I was thinking about the boy playing in the mud puddle in the slums when an offer of a vacation to the sea is there, um, you know, and, and so I wonder, you know, Randy, if you could answer this as a C.S. Lewis scholar, what made Lewis so, so gifted here and how might we become better at, at connecting with the imagination, at using imagery in our, uh, really in our, in our everyday language so that using imagery in our evangelism would be more natural. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I, I doubt any of us can ever be as good at it as C.S. Lewis, but we can all become a lot better than what we are. I, I think, uh, first of all, uh, there's, I, I think God just gave C.S. Lewis this amazingly active imagination. I mean, he just yeah. couldn't stop it. Now, some of it is uh, he was born into an Irish culture 
Uh, he, he was born in Belfast in, uh, it's now called Northern Ireland as a separate country, but at the time he was born, uh, was, it was all Ireland. And that's a very storytelling culture. And so he just grew up with lots of stories that he read that, and had a, just a brilliant mind that could devour books so quickly. So, it, so that's part of the, the uniqueness of C.S. Lewis. But, um, but um, we can all develop and push ourselves in the direction of finding illustrations and stories that work for us. And um, just look at how much of the Bible is story and imagery and poetry. And, um, oh, you know, the, the prophets, they, they told lengthy illustrations of what it, would, what it was like so that, so that you, you felt not just, gee, sinning against God is bad. You, you heard Ezekiel tell a story of a young woman who turns away from, from her family and becomes immoral and starts sleeping around. And the story is, it's, it's disgusting. It's, it's like very, very upsetting. Um, but, but illustrations do that. They elicit strong emotion. So what I try to encourage people in the book is, well, try to look at your own story of coming to faith. And is there a, is there a story or an illustration that, that can, um, uh, you know, that give people a feeling of what it's like. Um, Mm. I, I, I tell in the book about how my wife, when she shares about her story of coming to faith, she very often talks about pirates. And she says, you know, we've all heard about pirates looking for buried treasure. Now, the pirates know the treasure's out there somewhere, but they just don't know where. So, so they're looking. They, there's something very, very good. It's out there, but I don't know where it is. And they're searching, and they're digging up holes, and they're, they're, they're looking for buried treasure. Now, isn't that packed with all sorts of emotion? And it's like, it's like it just makes you kind of want to – you almost have to look around the room. It's like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Well, she said, that's what I was like when I went off to college. I thought there must be some sort of hidden Mm. treasure somewhere, but I didn't know whether I was going to find it in English literature class or sociology class or relationships with people or whatever. But I knew that I was looking and longing for something. Um, So so I I want to encourage people, um, read fiction and find stories or imagery that move you and ask why, what what is that what is that doing inside of you and then how can you incorporate those kinds of illustrations when you're talking to people mm. that's great randy you know i want to there's so much in this book uh i want to just ask you about one more thing um so we've touched on pre-evangelism clues imagery i want to i want to ask you about pushback mm-hmm. and no and no listeners that there are Six more tremendously helpful insights here. We're trying to give you like a movie trailer so that you buy the book and you'll, you'll watch the movie and you'll see all of that. In your chapter on pushback, you, you wrote about, there's this great little story about a, uh, a conversation you've been having with a, with a math professor via email who sent you a brief sarcastic email that read this. Here's something Christians need to own up to. Why are there so many different kinds of Christianity? There isn't more than one kind of mathematics. There isn't more than one kind of biology. There isn't one more than oh, one kind of Oh, but there is. <laughs> well, <laughs> so you, you wrote back and said, 
Are you saying there isn't disagreement within the academic disciplines of mathematics or biology or physics? Do all scholars in these fields agree on all details of their discipline? I'm surprised to see such a simplistic question from someone with a PhD level training and experience. Was that a sincere question or a jab at me? Now, of course, that email prompted a a good exchange. And so, you, you know, th- this is an example of uh, pushing back in ways that you, you mention it as this, as both being genuine pushbacks and genuinely gentle. How, how can Lewis help us be genuinely gentle while also genuinely pushing back uh, on people who are opposed to, to the faith? Man, uh, well, let me quickly say that that exchange with that professor, um, that wasn't the first exchange. I mean, we had been going back and forth for several weeks. So it started it started because he thought I was the other Randy Newman, that I, <laughs> I was the guy who wrote the music to um, uh, the, the theme song to Monk. Remember the Monk? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jungle yeah. out there. Well, Randy Newman wrote that music. So he, he thought I was that guy, and he just was sending me this email saying, I really like that song. And that started this thing back and forth. But so it was it, it had been going for several weeks with some very, very good conversation about spiritual issues. And he told me he was an atheist and. Uh, and and so we had a lot of good back and forth before that that kind of snarky uh, thing, and it really was out of character. That's why I that's why I thought I could push back and say, "Is, is this a real question?" Or <laughs> I mean, I I almost wanted him to say, "Did you have too much to drink tonight?" I mean, you know, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't say that. Um, but but so um, uh, this is a very very important part of apologetics. It's all the way through the Bible. Um, Jesus pushed back when people asked him questions that showed they weren't sincere in their question. Um, and Lewis modeled it for us in ways that I think we need to learn. The challenge is, we, I, in our world today, people either feel like, oh, you just have to be totally positive. Oh, that's a good question. Here, let me, here's how I would answer that. Or, or we have to be mean and sarcastic and argumentative in a disrespectful way. Preach, preach. And, and, and neither of those options are best in, in a lot of situations. We need to find ways to push back, but to do it gently and respectfully. And um, because, because some people need to be challenged. They really do. I mean, um, I mean, so the, the classic in the scripture is the guy who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you couldn't have asked for a better straight line for a <laughs> gospel presentation, but Jesus says, why do you call me good? No, no one is good except God alone. That was pushback. And and he, he it says that the man went away sad at the end of that. Sometimes our conversations need to kind of push back at people. It's a very tangible, loving thing to do, but it's very difficult in our culture. So we need a lot of help. And I wrote that chapter to try to say, well, here's, here's some ways that C.S. Lewis did it. Now, now, granted, a lot of that was C.S. Lewis talking on a radio. Now, that's, you know, that's, that's not where most of us interact with people. So you have to take what he did and adapted to a friendly conversation. But all I was trying to say was um, we need to learn the language of pushback um, because it's, it, 
well, I'm just repeating myself. It, it is a very kind and loving thing to do to point out to people when they're believing things that are not good for them to believe. Happens on social media every day, doesn't it? Um, I, uh, uh, social media has become so terribly anti-social. I, I don't know if that's exactly. even a place anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing a lot more of personal conversations yeah. with people where it's just two people talking either face to face or by email, but not, there's something in about front of the world yeah. out there. Yeah. With in front of an audience, that's, that's a, that's a different kind of communication and, and it's a good kind or it can be, I mean, again, that's what Lewis was doing on the radio. He was talking to thousands of people. So, but we, we need to not confuse those two and, and think that they're the same thing because they're not. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yes. I was joking okay. about that. Jesse and I shared on here many times the inappropriate nature of social media for some real conversations to happen. So that was a little bit of a tongue in cheek. He was trying uh, to bait me into saying yeah. something bad about social media. <laughs> Get off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but there's a bit of a performative aspect to social media yeah. that I think poisons the well of really kind and gentle conversation because People are performing for not just an audience, but a certain kind of audience. And that leads to distortions that I think are, are unkind, um, many times um, hurtful to, to the things that we care deeply about sharing with other people. And, you know, Reed, to that point, um, social media, oftentimes we're not talking with someone that we love. We're talking with someone that's kind of faceless um, or someone that we actually don't love, someone that we're... Uh, Not we feel an yeah, we feel an antagonism towards, and I think even thinking about Jesus and the and the 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 law, you know, the the, the student of the law that comes to him and calls him good teacher, I, you know, Jesus loved him, and his pushback was a was a pushback that came out of his love for him. Now, Randy describing that email exchange with the math professor, which had come you know, over a mistaken identity and then multiple emails is a case of, uh, I want to be loving in my response. And sometimes pushing back, uh, is a loving thing. And I, I want to highlight one thing that Randy did in that, in that email that Lewis does, which is, is that pushback isn't just, you know, like, like you're here and then I'm coming over top of you. It's actually a, a pressing in with a question. You know, I'm surprised. Did, did you mean this as a jab or did you, was this a genuine question? Uh, that's enough to land where, oh, you know what? I can see where that came across as a jab. And now that I think about it, you're right. You know, as was the case in uh, the email exchange Randy describes. Well, gentlemen, Randy, I'm so thankful that you've joined us here. I'd love to uh, close out our interview. Uh, we are recommending that folks listening buy this book, Mere Evangelism. More than a review-ish for us. This is actually, we've, we've read it, we reviewed it, we recommend it. That's right. That's right. Um, Randy, as we, as we close our time, would you tell us just a little bit about what you do with the C.S. Lewis Institute and maybe make one or two other C.S. Lewis biography recommendations? Oh, oh, wow. I put um, you on the spot. You did. Well, um, I think my favorite biography of Lewis is the one by George Sayer, simply entitled Jack. Uh, and, and that's because George Sayer knew Lewis as a close friend. So he, he does a good job as a historian or as a biographer, but you're also getting the flavor as a friend. 
Whereas other, I, I, I mean, I've read quite a few and I like them all, I think, but, but that one has more of a personal feel to it. Um, uh, I, I will tell you about the C.S. Lewis Institute in just a second, but, but I, I, I wanted to say uh, I'm struck by what Lewis says toward the end of his sermon slash essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I, I just think that that's one of the most important things for us to remember. Theologically, we Christians have this very, very strong basis that all people are created in the image of God. And so they are to be treated with dignity and respect and love. Uh, I'm really glad, Jesse, you pointed out in, in Mark's account of Jesus' in, interaction with that man, good teacher, why must uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark inserts... Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Mm -hmm. And and it's a word for love that implies a penetrating, deep love. And we we need to ask God to work in us so that we love people that way. We won't be able to manufacture it on our own. But but if God will work in us that way, that just changes the flavor of our conversations. So anyway, commercial for the C.S. Lewis Institute. We are a discipleship ministry. Um, we, we very often say we're not, we're not trying to make fans of C.S. Lewis, but we do want to hope to, to help people become more and more like him, um, where Lewis thought so very, very rigorously and deeply about all of life. So we use this tagline of uh, discipleship of the heart and mind. And so I, I provide teaching and writing through the Institute. We have a, a year-long uh, discipleship program we call the fellows program and we've got that going in i don't know 14 or 15 different cities and uh, we we want to try to help people to be as thoroughly converted <laughs> uh, as c.s lewis was thoroughly converted well amen randy thanks so much for your work your writing your time today we do want to say to any of you out there who are kind of maybe have questions about god not sure what you believe about god maybe you're kind of wandering in the borderlands between the church and culture we do highly recommend mere christianity uh to you today and for those of you who uh, care deeply about sharing uh jesus christ in a robust way in a thoughtful way a thoughtfully engaged way with your friends your family we do recommend mere evangelism and all the works of C.S. Lewis. Randy, thanks for making that uh, presentable to us and available to in a form that we can really uh, digest. And we will continue onward uh, looking at the legacy of a person, right, who, who is uh, not a mere mortal, but not a Superman either, uh, like us, maybe with a gift and a mind and an intellect and an imagination, but each of us can be used by God in our own way in circles of influence. Little love for uh, G.K. Chesterton, do from me as well as we close. Orthodoxy, probably second best book in the 20, uh, 20th century. And Randy, thank you for joining us. The Gospel Underground podcast is produced in partnership with the Bon Hoover. I'll say it correctly because Randy said it earlier correctly. The Bon Hoover House. Uh, we produce this podcast together. Review us on iTunes. Five stars are acceptable. Send your comments, feedback, or questions you might want us to take up here on the Underground to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture, maybe lingering at Narnia for a little while, and we hope to see you out there. Peace. Thanks, Randy, for coming on today.